Recording is in progress. Okay, so our topic for tonight, for the last session of the season, are the gates of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, I must admit, ahead of time, I have not been to all seven of the functional gates of Jerusalem. For reasons of my own personal safety, I've never felt comfortable going to a a few of them. Uh, And I'll let you know as we go along the route which ones I only know from a distance, or actually some of them I've been on top of, but not through at the ground level, because the Ramparts Walk takes you above, and there's a certain measure of safety there that you might not have if you're at the ground level with the Hamonam. All right. So last time, we were discussing the first two of the seven. First one being the Shar Ashpot, the Dung Gate, which, as you know, is right near the Kotel, and is used... Uh, for vehicular traffic, at least in the post-1967 era, uh, and is very convenient for those who want to have uh, quick transportation to uh, Temple Mount slash Kotel and not want to have to walk through the old city. Uh, then we discussed Zion Gate, Sharzion, <coughs> which is also known by several other names. It's also known as Shar David because of the incorrect assumption that Kever David at the tomb of David is in close proximity on Mount Zion, and also known as the Shar Harova Yehudi, the gate of the Jewish quarter, because in fact, this was, this is the closest gate to the residential areas of the Jewish quarter and was used by Jews during the latter part of the 19th century and the first 45, 48 years of the 20th century to access the Jewish quarter from points further south, meaning if you were going from the Montefiore areas or even further south than that, you might not uh, inconvenience yourself to go all the way to Jaffa Gate. You might go down the hill and back up the hill uh, through Sharzion. Okay, but now let's get to the main gate of the old city as it stands today and as it was uh, for much of the Ottoman period, and that is the Jaffa Gate. Why is it known as the Jaffa Gate? Because uh, Derech Yafo or Rechov Yafo, however you want to call it, which was the road that connected Jerusalem to the port of Jerusalem. What is the port of Jerusalem? Jaffa. Okay, it was known as the Namal, the port of Jerusalem, because that was where the ships uh, uh, docked and the cargo was transported inland to the, you know, to the spiritual capital in Jerusalem. So there was a, a road. That road today is only called Derech uh, Yafo from the outskirts of the old city up until the outskirts of contemporary Western Jerusalem. And then it's Road 1, which for a long time was the main highway to connect to Tel Aviv. Now it's been surpassed by the more modern highways. But Road 1 is a connection of the old Jaffa Road. Okay, and it ended at Jaffa Gate. Many, many, uh, a long time ago. I mean, I'm not exactly sure when. It was probably several hundred years. Not as a a paved road, but just as a path. The road to Jaffa, the Jaffa Road. Okay. The other name for the Jaffa Gate was uh, the Gate of the Friend in Arabic, Al-Khalil, which is also the name for Hebron. So it was known as the Gate of Hebron. Why? Because Derech Hebron, which is really Route route 60, runs flush against the Jaffa Gate. It meanders and then in modern times goes sort of through a tunnel and then up the hill uh, 
going around the old city. So it was known in, the, in Arab parlance as the Hebron Gate or the Gate of the Friend. It was built in 1538. Almost all of the gates of the seven gates that we're going to refer to as gates of the old city were built around that time because the walls themselves were built between 1537 and 1540 and the gates roughly in 1538. Okay, what was the purpose? The answer is that you need to get in and out of the city. It had several thousand residents at that time when the walls were constructed and people need to leave. So you have to have openings in the wall. The purpose of the wall was defensive in nature, fortification, but also religious in nature because uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was the successor to Selim I, had this vision that God was angry with them for thoughts about destroying the city and that the only way to assuage God's wrath was to build a wall around the city and you need to have gates going in and out. The, most of the gates are on top of or roughly correspond to locations where there were prior gates or entrances to the city uh, in prior iterations of the wall. And the archaeologists can dig down and find where they, they see an entranceway for an earlier, more subterranean version of the, of the city wall. Yes, yes. That's the, the, the whole point is that um, the, there were you know, walls that were around for the 13th century. The walls were torn down in the 1220s and those walls had gates and those gates were roughly around the same place as these for all except one. We're going to get to the new gate, which was brand new and had maybe it didn't have a predecessor. OK, so the, most of the gates and noticeably Jaffa, but also Sharon as well, are L-shaped. What is the point of the L-shaped gate? Okay, so it's a defensive posture that the enemy who's invading cannot bring a, a battering ram, go right through and puncture their way through and be in, but rather has to come in and turn, which requires some maneuverability. And uh, that allows the defenders the opportunity to regroup and to, to counterattack. So the Jaffa gate is the classic L-shaped defensive gate. Uh, but most people, when they go through the Jaffa Gate, don't actually go through the Jaffa Gate. They go through the breach in the wall, which is about 50 feet wide. And as we mentioned in an earlier lecture, was made in 1898 uh, in honor of the arrival of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Uh, why was this uh, done? So there are two factors. One is because Kaiser Wilhelm was an arrogant jerk. And he wanted to ride in on his horse in his full regalia, which would not have fit inside the Jaffa Gate as it actually stood, because the gate is only 20 feet high. The wall goes another 20 feet further. So the wall is 40 feet high, but the entranceway itself is only 20 feet. And if his uh, grand entrance required a, a, a clearance higher than that, he would have had to, uh, to bend down or not wear his funny hat. So puncture the wall big wide opening uh, and he'll go through. But there's, there's another factor and that is the Ottoman authorities had this uh, Arab legend that said that if a foreign ruler rides through the city, through the Jaffa Gate, he will conquer the city. And there was no desire to have Kaiser Wilhelm II be the official con you know, Christian conqueror of a Muslim city. 
therefore, let him go in, but by other means. Okay, so the Kaiser was accommodated because the Ottoman Empire was in its dying days in the 1890s, having already been defeated in several military conflicts in the middle to latter parts of the, of the 19th century. They were in no uh, condition to dictate terms to European monarchs. European monarchs were dictating terms to them, including ceremonial stuff like how I'm going to walk into a city. Okay. Now, the uh, the Ottomans in 1900 commissioned 100 clock towers around the, the empire to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the reign of Abdul Hamid. <coughs> well, <coughs> these clock towers were pretty expensive. And... Jerusalem, being a poor city, could not afford so readily to pay for this clock tower. So it didn't get built or didn't get completed until 1908. And the clock tower was 13 feet tall, and it was positioned just on top of the Jaffa Gate. Sorry, folks at home. My apologies. We're live. Don't worry. Uh, and you've never seen it. Have you seen the clock tower on the Jaffa Gate? No. Why not? Because okay. it didn't last very long. So it was 13 feet tall, and it had four uh, clock faces on all four sides. On two of the sides, it had the local time, Jerusalem time. And on the other two sides, it had um, European time, standard European time. So that if you were a visitor, you knew what time it was back home, and knew what time it was local. Uh, well... In 1917, um, when Allenby entered through the Jaffa Gate on foot, mind you, unlike uh, Kaiser, who entered on horseback, so he decided he, he didn't like the way it looked. It was, seemed out of character for Jerusalem. It's one thing for Big Ben in London or you know, European capitals for there to be a fancy clock tower, but in a Middle Eastern city, a backwater like Jerusalem, the flavor of the town is of the old world, not of the technological world or a world in which keeping time actually matters. So in 1922, the British authorities tore down the clock tower above Jaffa Gate and they put the clock in Allenby Square. Where is Allenby Square? No, well, there is an Allenby Square there too, but where's Allenby Square in Jerusalem? So it's not known as Allenby Square anymore. It's not known as Kikard Sahal. And it's the the turn, the, the junction uh, where the old city and the new city meet by the area, by the by city hall, the municipality. It's where the light rail curves. It goes to, if you're coming from, let's say, uh, Ben Yehuda Street, you're going the light rail towards the old city, it curves to the left. So that's uh, was known as Allenby Square, now known as Kikard Sahal. Uh, they put the clock in the middle of that intersection. But then they decided they didn't like it there either. And in 1934, they destroyed the whole thing. So goodbye, Jaffa clock tower. You mentioned the hundred. <coughs> yeah. I assume that's throughout Europe. Throughout the Ottoman Empire, of which seven were in British Mandate Palestine. Okay. Any of Some of them still exist. Yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I've ever seen anyone in person, but six of the, uh, the others still uh, were elsewhere in the country and may still exist. Okay. Um, the British decided to clear away buildings that were adjacent to the Jaffa Gate or that were flush against the wall of the old city between the Jaffa Gate and the corner of the, of the old city before the turn northbound. 
because if you can imagine your your layout, the map, so Jaffa Gate is like in a, um, there's let's say like this, and the gates over here, the wall continues forward until you get to what is almost uh, City Hall. There used to be like a shanty town there, huts, shops. It looked gross. And the British didn't like that. They wanted to have a pristine vista, a pristine view of the old city from the new city, and they cleared it all away. Some of the the, the uh, writers, the historians slash uh, uh, journalists who look back upon the city say that the British didn't made a mistake here because they made like a, like a Disney World kind of situation out of what was a real city. Taking what were the lives of real people in a functional city, they turned it into... Uh, uh, a, fiction, a fictional version, um, a perfect version of the old city that it, that it wasn't. Today, what exists in the stretch of, of uh, land from Jaffa Gate towards the end of the city wall, it's a, basically a park. There's grass area, there's a, there's a, there's a walkway, but there's also grass and kids playing ball there. Uh, it's an empty spot. The, 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 the Israelis, after the 1967 war, under the auspices of Moshe Dayan, wanted to create a green belt, like, like uh, New York City has a green belt, so, so then with that, a Jerusalem green belt around the old city where there's no construction, it's just grass and open space. Okay. One of the, the uh, lovely features of the Jaffa Gate, which I mentioned in a previous lecture, was the, the, the two graves that are situated just inside of the gate. And the legend has it that those were the architects who built the wall, uh, working for Suleiman the Magnificent, and that they pocketed the money uh, that would have gone to include Mount Zion inside the old city. Uh, and when they got caught, they were executed and buried right there. However, it probably is just a legend and not really true. There may have been such architects, but those are not their graves. Those graves predate the 1530s by a long shot, but probably just some Muslim sheikh of some kind. Okay. Well, during the Ottoman era, uh, Christians could enter <coughs> the old city of Jerusalem only through the Jaffa Gate. And so it became known as the Pilgrim's Gate. So there were the religious biases in the Ottoman period, and this was the gate from, through which Christians entered. This is not a surprise at all. Why not? Because where is the Christian quarter? The Christian quarter is roughly the northwestern quarter of the old city. And at that time, there was no gate that entered into the Christian quarter. We'll see. Now there is the so-called new gate, but that didn't exist until the 1880s. So if you wanted to enter and get to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, what was the fastest way to do it? Yes, in theory, if, it was, if the Damascus Gate was open to Christians, they could have gone down that way and come across this way. But it was not open to them. They had to go through Jaffa Gate. As a result of that, the Jaffa Gate uh, area became a site for Christian countries to place two types of things, two types of institutions. One institution is a consulate. Remember, we, we discussed at length that the European powers and even the Americans in the 1800s, from the 1840s and onward, were in a battle royale for who could exert the most influence over the Ottomans and you know, dominate the scene in Jerusalem. But the Ottomans are weak. They can, be, they can be pushed into submission. And so you use your consul general to protect your own citizens who are there or your, or your religious kinsmen who are there. 
and to insist upon concessions, capitulations, in terms of I control this church, I control this holy spot, whatever it might be. So consulates were often placed near the Jaffa Gate. The other thing that was placed near the Jaffa Gate was missionary institutions. So if you go to Israel today and you go through Jaffa Gate, what are some of the things you'll find if you just look straight ahead right through the hole in the wall? The Swedish missionary uh, building and uh, the American missionary building. So you have the Christian quarter, which is very Palestinian in, in its character to the left. You have the Armenian quarter, which is to the right and you know, past David Citadel. But right smack in front of you, aside from a police station, is uh, you know, are a whole bunch of European slash American missionary institutions that have been there for over 130, 140, 150 years and are still there. Okay. Um, during the Jordanian period, the Jaffa Gate was sealed shut, as you could imagine why. Because on one side was a Jordanian old city of Jerusalem, and on the other side was no man's land, with Israel being, you know, a good 500 feet, 1,000 feet further over on the far side of the Mamila. Uh, so it was, it was shut. There was barbed wire. You could see from Israel into the old city. You could see the hole, the gap in the wall, but that's about all you could see. Uh, and you had, to, you had to be careful not to get shot. Um, <clears throat> Jaffa Gate leads into David Street, which divides the old city between the north and the south, going east-west. So this is a, another uh, explanation historically about why the gate might be located there, because the old city of Jerusalem is uh, divided into quadrants, which is really a bluff. There really aren't four quarters, and they're certainly not equally sized quarters. It wasn't until the 1850s that maps began to show four quarters, Jewish, Armenian, Muslim, Christian, and was based upon a British cartographer who didn't know he was talking about. But still, there is a road that goes this way, and there's a road that goes this way. The one that goes across goes from the Jaffa Gate down David Street to the to, to uh, the, the road of the chain, and eventually gets you to Harabait. Um, and that's really why the gate is located where it's located. It wasn't because the, the, the builders and the municipal planners decided we're going to put a gate here. Rather, that's where the road ended, so you got to get out. And therefore, the gate was put where the road ended. All right. <coughs> Let's now go to the new gate, the Shar HaChadash. So I've been through the new gate. Uh, it's kind of a quiet place. There's not much action there. But why was it built? So it was built in 1889 because the Ottomans were, uh, or the municipal authorities in Jerusalem were being pressured to allow for direct access to the Christian quarter from neighborhoods beyond the walls. Remember, in the 1860s, Jerusalem grows beyond the wall, Jewish neighborhoods primarily to the south and then to the west. And then in the 1870s, a little bit to the northwest, but also Christian uh, facilities are, are popping up, built by European powers. The most two important ones were the Hospice of Notre Dame, built by the French, and the Russian compound built by the Romanov Tsars. So these two institutions, the Russian compound and Notre Dame, you, you want to get from those places to the Christian holy sites in the, the Christian quarter 
without having to go a roundabout way, a circuitous way, which would have meant Jaffa Gate or Damascus Gate. And that wasn't convenient. So therefore, let's build a new gate. So the authorities built one, and it may have been built on top of what was a pre-modern or a pre-15th century gate of some monastery. We're not entirely sure. Um, during the 1920s and 30s, this gate was the closest to the new to modern Jerusalem. It was actually easier to get to the municipality and certain uh, neighborhoods to the north and west via the new gate than it was via the Jaffa gate. But from a Jewish point of view, did you really want to go through the Christian quarter? Well, no, it wasn't terribly unsafe at times, but in the 1920s, once the riots started, uh, you know, if you were a Jew, it was best to avoid unfriendly territory. And so Zion Gate and, and Jaffa Gate remained the preferred choices for Jews who were going, let's say, to Me'asharim or Geula or Beit Yisrael. Yes, you could go through the Shara Hadash, you could, and it might even be, be shorter, a quicker walk, but safety prudence might have dictated, don't go that way. Okay, the gate, the new gate was sealed during the Jordanian period. Why? Same thing as the Jaffa Gate. Where was the border? So if you look at a map of Israel, you will see the 1949 Armistice Line. The 1949 Armistice Line has within Israel, okay, the area to the north of the old city, on the wet, the northwestern corner of the old city, the Morashar, Musrara neighborhood, became part of Israel, courtesy of a battle between the Arab Legion and the Palmach and the Irgun. So it, the, the border was not a, a vertical line north-south. It veered to the east by a few blocks and then went north, and then there was a bit of a no-man's land in between. So because the area north of the new, of the new gate was Israel, that meant that the border was where? Flush against the new gate. So since you have an international frontier at a municipal gate with hostile relations between the two countries, what happens? You seal the gate shut, closed. Nobody gets through. So you know, the, the history of the old city in the Jordanian period is very interesting history. We tend not to discuss it because it's not our, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing Jewish about it. But just from a political point of view, it's fascinating. You have entranceways, seal the border, shut. So no, no access from the new gate. No, the Israeli territory started two inches beyond it. Like it's the, the, Israel goes right up to the, to, to the wall, and then the gate is inside. Okay, um, it was reopened in in nineteen sixty-seven and became a convenient way for people from northern par parts of Jewish Jerusalem to access the old city. Uh, considered reasonably safe re relative to Damascus or, or, or Herod's Gate further to the east. Okay. Uh, at one point, I, I had forgotten to make a mention about Jaffa Gate. The Jaffa Gate has an inscription from Suleiman's time glorifying Suleiman as being the builder of, uh, of the walls of Jerusalem. So in 1969, when uh, Jaffa Gate was restored because there had been damage done in the course of wars, uh, a new plaque was installed, and you can see it to this day, just below the Suleiman plaque, quoting from a passage from Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the builder of the walls of Jerusalem, glorifying Israel's efforts at restoring the walls of Jerusalem. So uh, th there's history, 
know, their history, our history, and some kind of somewhere in between is a neutral history. Okay. Now let's go to the Damascus Gate. Shar Damascus. Built in 1538, <coughs> it was also known as <coughs> Shar Shem. In fact, in Hebrew, nobody ever calls it Shar Damascus. They call it Shar Shem. Um, why by these names? Well, it makes sense that a, a gate called Shar Shem, because from this gate goes the road to, to, to Nablus, to Shem, would also be the place where you go to Damascus. Remember, Damascus is in the same direction. You go north, yeah, and you'll eventually get somewhere. So the the Arabic name, Bab al-Amud, like this guy's davening for the Amud, known as the Gate of the Column, because there was a column right in the middle of the gate. It's been since removed. There's also the biblical Shar Ephraim. Why would this be known as Shar Ephraim? Because it's the way to get to Yisrael. You know, Jerusalem is in Yehuda, the southern kingdom. You go to, to Israel, the northern kingdom, by heading out of the northern gate of Jerusalem, go north. So Ephraim is the classical name for the, nor- the ten tribes, the northern kingdom. Unlike the Jaffa Gate, which you must access by going up a staircase, uh, which, okay, it used to be a, a fairly difficult climb. Uh, in the days before they built the Mamila, so what did you have to do? You had to go down and then back up the ramp for, for uh, at least for vehicular traffic to get into the Jaffa Gate. Now it's a it's a breeze. You just go down the the ramp and you're in. Or if you're coming through the Mamila, up a pretty steep staircase and then you're in. But the point is, you're going up the Damascus Gate. By contrast, you go down. The street level is a good maybe ten feet above the floor of the gate. And there's several layers of steps, and you go in, boom, you're in. Um, the Damascus Gate has an unpleasant Jewish history. Why do I say this? Because good things didn't tend to happen there for our people. Um, it's, a, it's a symbol, maybe more than any other symbol in the city outside of Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock. It's a symbol of Palestinian nationalism. And in fact, I would argue, uh, if you take away the, the, the shrines on the, on the Harabite as being religious symbols, the Damascus Gate is probably the ultimate symbol of Palestinian secular national resistance to the Judaization of Jerusalem. All the big rallies happened there. And a lot of major terrorist incidents happened there. So if you, uh, if you just go through any article that tells you the history of Damascus Gate, you'll see a long roster of incidents in which people died. Now, of course, there are also cases of Jews killing Arabs there. And during the, the era of 1945 to 1948, this was a convenient target for the Igun and the Lehi to, to pick off a few uh, uh, Arab civilians, which then in turn led to a further cycle of violence. So this is a, 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 a bloody spot, to say the least. It's the main gateway for Arabs from the West Bank to enter into the old city on Fridays to, to pray to say their prayers at Al-Aqsa. So thousands and thousands of Arabs who are not residents of Jerusalem, but visitors to Jerusalem, go through the Damascus Gate uh, every, every single week. So, there, yeah, there, there, are, there are connections to, to the ancient past to get to, uh, to, uh, to, to the, the, the various tombs that exist, to the tomb of Shmuel, whatever, north of the old city, 
conventionally the Jewish pilgrim would go via the Damascus Gate out to the north and see those pilgrimage places. Okay, um, let's go to <coughs> Herod's Gate. So Herod's Gate, it should be noted, is not named for Herod the Great. Which Herod is it named after? Herod Antipas. Okay, so Herod Antipas, who was a, a tetrarch in the Galilee, but had rights over Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. Um, and it was named that by that name because it was said that he had a, an abode, some kind of a mansion or a palace in the vicinity of, of that gate. Right. It's also known as the Flower Gate or Sharhap Prahim. Uh, but that name in Hebrew is probably a bastardization of an Arabic word, and there's no flowers there. It's just it's, it's an incorrect term. In Arabic, it was known as Bab al-Zahara, named after uh, those who, who walk in the night or who, who wander in the night. It's a reference to the cemetery that exists across the road, a cemetery which was built and dedicated to those who had gone on the Hajj on pilgrimage to Mecca. So the, the Hebrew name is a bastardization of the Arabic name, which itself is named after a cemetery for those who went on pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. Uh, Herod's Gate logically would have very little Jewish uh, significance because it's in the northeast corner of the city, in a, like, uh, like a no-go zone, deep in the heart of, of, of the Muslim quarter. Although, in more recent years, Atarad uh, Kohanim and uh, the Jerusalem Reclamation Project have, have purchased homes in the vicinity of the Herod's Gate. And so there is a, a Jewish presence in the Muslim quarter, uh, not far from the gate. In the, in, in the 1600s, 1700s, the gate was open. It's a small gate, not much foot traffic. But then a, a pile of rocks was put in front of the gate. It was, blo- it was closed shut. And for about 75 years, nobody walked through this gate. It was sealed shut. In 1875, the gate was finally reopened. And instead of it being an L-shaped one for defensive purposes, uh, it was built um, as a frontal gate. You walk right through. If you see a picture, there's no weird curvature. You go from the outside, you walk right through, you're in the city. What does it say about the nature of walls and gates that in the 1870s, a gate was built which is perfectly straight as opposed to angular. And by the way, the new gate is the same way. What does that tell you about, about walls and gates? Right. It's no longer for defensive purposes. Where, where, whereas in the 1530s, the wall really was to protect the residents of the town from being slaughtered by some enemy and the town from being captured by some political foe. Uh, and you had to worry about these things. By the 1870s, this is all ceremonial nonsense. It's all for aesthetic purposes and architectural beauty, but not because anybody's nervous about being uh, captured. So that explains the change in the sh- in Herod's Gate, Shah Prahim, to be a straight on, straight through gate. Okay. Now we get to the last of the open gates, uh, and that of the Lion's Gate, Shah Arayot. So in, in the Christian tradition, this is known as St. Stephen's Gate. It's also known in Arabic but with a Christian tinge to it, as the gate of my lady Mary. And it's the start of the, the Via della Rosa. So from a Christian point of view, there is a reason to visit this lion's gate. How do you get there? So the answer is, you can get there from the inside by just, you know, going th- th- through the Jaffa gate, 
across, meandering over a little bit, so you don't bump into the Temple Mount, and go to go north of the Temple Mount and go out to the Lion's Gate. That's how you get from inside the city. From outside the city, if you were a Christian pilgrim, so likely you were coming from the west, you were coming from the coastal areas, and what did you do? You went around. Most likely, instead of going through the Jaffa Gate, you went around Mount Zion, visited the, the Senegal, uh, visited whatever uh, holy places you might have thought were holy on Mount Zion, uh, Room of the Last Supper, David's Tomb, whatever it is, gone down the, the, the eastern slope of Mount Zion into, well, to the, the edges of the Hinnom Valley, into the Kidron Valley, and then had some fun on, on Mount of Olives, gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and whatever churches are at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, and then made your way up the hill to the eastern wall of the old city, which is also the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, made your way to past the Arabic cemetery to the Lion's Gate, and then gone through the gate and start the Via Dolorosa, the path of suffering, the way of suffering. And for the Christian, <coughs> this is a big deal. So I tend not to uh, go to East Jerusalem or to the Muslim quarter uh, on my own out of uh, fear of my well-being. But I once saw there was an international tourist group, you know, with the, with the tour guides with the big flag and everybody has a red hat on and uh, you don't, don't get lost and we'll, we'll forget about you. So I figured, ah, it's a free tour and I'm going to blend right in with a bunch of Asian tourists. So, <laughs> so that's why I, I went to the Lion's Gate and I went on the Via Dolorosa the whole way towards the Christian quarter. And that's how I learned a lot that I otherwise never would do. I'd be afraid to have to do it on my own. Okay. This is like uh, 15 years ago I did this. So now why is it called the Lion's Gate? Where, where did the lions come from? The answer is that Suleiman had four lions carved into the wall just above the gate. You've been there. You've seen it. Now you see pictures of it. There are two to the left and two to the right. Uh, so why these two, why these lions? The answer is that lions represent uh, the threat of annihilation for religious failure. By the way, in the Bible, where do we find that? With the Samaritans, with the Kutim, the Kutians, you know, the, the predecessors of the, Sam the Samaritans, the Shomranim. What does it say in the Bible? That they were not worshiping the God of Israel. And so lions came and devoured them or threatened them. And so they, what they do? They converted to the religion of Israel. They're known as Geirei Arayot. Not Arayot with an Ayin. That's sexual violations. Arayot with an Aleph. Lions. So they, they brought in some, some Hebrews to teach them the religion of the land. And they became quasi-Israelites. So Samaritans with a, with a religion similar to Judaism. Right, so that's the story in the Bible about lions being a threat when you do religious wrong. But according to Suleiman, his predecessor Salim had threatened, had contemplated destroying the city, leveling it off. And he had a dream that lions were going to eat him for his sin. And the only solution was to rebuild the walls of the city and build it back up. So therefore, lions are this symbol on the wall of the gate. No, no, they're actually pretty small. Take a look at a picture uh, uh, you know, on Google. You'll see they're not that big. Okay, so according, according to some scholars, the lion becomes the symbol of Jerusalem courtesy of this episode and that depiction on the, the lion's gate, that it doesn't go back a thousand years or two thousand years to something specifically Jewish. It goes back to Suleiman and Salim, Islamic, uh, but somehow that became 
the graphic depiction for Jerusalem. The Jerusalem flag, which everybody waves in Yom Yerushalayim, is a blue and white and gold flag with a lion on it. Okay, Degel Yerushalayim. Gurar Ye Yehuda. So maybe, maybe, but uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if, if uh, from an artistic point of view, uh, the Gurar Ye Yehuda has a long history. I just know this is it's being asserted. Okay. Well, Telegraph entered Jerusalem in 1865 through the Lion's Gate. I'm not sure why. I can't understand why that would be the case. I have to look into this further because you would figure that technology or telecommunications is coming to Jerusalem, coming to the land of Israel from where? Probably from Damascus or Beirut, possibly from Cairo, though more more likely not because you have to go across the Sinai Desert. Presumably, the, the, the telegraph wires are coming from Europe down through Turkey, through Syria, Lebanon, and to Israel. If that's the case, I would have figured it would come through the Northern Gate or possibly the Western Gate. Why it should come through the Lion's Gate, which is right next to the Judean Desert, I don't know, but that's what the, uh, the, the, the history books say. It's a curiosity. Now, in the late Ottoman era and into the early British era, there was, it was necessary to have a police station in the vicinity of the Lion's Gate. And the reason why what may remind you, if you're a Dafyomi learner, uh, I know some Talmud, of some Talmudic tale. Why was it necessary to have a police station near the Lion's Gate? Because Arab young hooligans would stone Jewish funeral processions on their way to Harazetim. That the, the caskets may have come out of Dung Gate or the Zion Gate, but might have just as easily come out of the Lion's Gate, okay, on their way to Harazetim. And what? You know, angry Arab kids throw rocks at it. This should remind you of what Talmudic tale? Um. One was smuggled in the bar. I think, right? Oh, so that you're yeah. thinking of of of, of uh, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai yeah, yeah. in the days of Vespasian. So I'm not thinking of that. I'm thinking of on Yom Kippurim, on Yom Kippur, every year, the designated man uh, yeah. would have to go out of the city on, on a ramp to the yonder, beyond the Mount of Olives, to the to the rendezvous point to throw the goat of Azazel over the cliff. Okay, well. The Talmud says that they had to build a ram in order to give this guy a measure of not of privacy, but of, of, of security, because these hooligans, Jewish hooligans, would start slapping the guy and slapping the, 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 the goat, saying, go faster, go faster, schnell, schnell. You know, the sins of the generation are upon you, so get out of here. Um, and they would pull the whiskers off the goat. So in order to, to prevent hooliganism, you had to have uh, some kind of security measure going out of the lion's gate. Same thing with the, with the, the kid throwing rocks uh, for the Jewish funerals. You mentioned casket. They don't use caskets today. Did they use that? No, no I, they were just a, a, on a beer. Okay. Well, <coughs> in 1967, the IDF victory in the old city <coughs> was via the lion's gate. This was the first ever victory, a conquest of Jerusalem from the east. Previously, Nearly every other conquest of Jerusalem happened from which direction? North, because topographically it's the easiest. Topographically, 
the high point of the old city of Jerusalem is actually the new gate. The new gate is the highest point. And in fact, if you're there you, and you're on the, the ramparts walk, you can see that you're at the highest point. You can look down at the Harabait, down at Sharash Boat, down in every direction. You know you're very high up. Uh, you don't really notice it at street level, but you notice it when you're above the wall. So topographically, the north is the easiest way to conquer from the east was a new thing. During the, uh, during the battle at Lion's Gate, so the doors were blown off. The iron doors, which had been very old, I couldn't tell you that they were original doors from the days of Suleiman in the 1530s, but they were very ancient doors. They were destroyed, they were blown off. And in 1969, they were restored as part of uh, the Jerusalem municipality's efforts to clean up the effects of the Six-Day War and have a pristine old city for tourism purposes. Okay, the, the Lion's Gate is also known by several other names. It's known as the Shar HaShvatim, the Gate of the Tribes. No one's really sure why it's called the Gate of the Tribes. One theory is it's because it leads to the cemetery, to Harazetim, where we're all together, uh, you know, and there's no longer tribal differences. Another, the- another name for the Shar Yehoshaphat, because it goes to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, also known as Nachal Kidron. Another name for it is Bab Gatshamna. What is Bab Gatshamna? So it's the Arabic name for the garden, the, the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, because you go through the, through the gate, the Lion's Gate, down the hill a little bit into the shrubbery area where the Garden of Gethsemane for, for Christian purposes, it's an important spot. It's also known as Bab Aricha. What is Bab Aricha? So uh, the Chet, not a, not, a, not a Chaf. So Bab Aricha, Shar Yericho, the gate of Jericho. If you want to go to Jericho, you go out that way. And lastly, it was known in the 19th century as Shar HaMizrach, the Eastern Gate. Why known as the Eastern Gate? Because in fact, it's the Eastern Gate. But this has Talmudic overtones because in the Gemara, the Mishnah, the Shar HaMizrach was the most illustrious of the gates to the Temple Mount. And as uh, your son wrote in his article, that's the way you go to see from Mount of Olives for purposes of the Afer Paraduma, the red heifer, you have to do the red heifer ceremony from a vantage point where you could look through the gate and see into the Kodesh Kadashim, because the steps of the temple uh, were such that there was always a little bit of space for a view, for a, 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 a visual from one spot to the other. All right, so this is not the same location as the Shara HaMizrach of the temple, but it was a, a functional eastern gate, therefore was known in the 19th century as Shar HaMizrach. Okay, what is the gate that is closed? So the, so the, the, the Shar HaRachamim, the golden gate, the gate of mercy, is a gate onto the temple mount itself, which was sealed shut in the 16th century. Uh, in, the, in the 1540s, that was closed shut. Nobody's gone through. It's a, it's a brick wall. All right. This gets us uh, through our you know, roundabout way of looking at the seven gates, or eight. Yeah. There was a gate that's a cemetery. <laughs> So there is a cemetery not far from the Lion's Gate, to the left. Actually, there are several cemeteries uh, that go flush against the wall of the, of the Temple Mount, which is the wall of the old city there. Uh, there are no Jewish cemeteries there. There's only Christian cemetery and Muslim cemeteries. 
wasn't the purpose of the Jews to not go through there? So there, there was a goal of restricting Jewish access on the premise that this gate is the most important gate because it's the closest to the holiest of spots. That if the Jews get through the Zion gate, big deal, it's their, it's their Jewish quarter. But this gets you to the, the Holy Mount. We want to keep the Jews out. Okay. So in the few minutes we have left, I want since this is our final class for the season, I want to do some concluding thoughts on Jerusalem. So first, I want to tell you a story about the uh, one of two times, actually, yeah, one of two times I ever had a meeting with the mayor of Jerusalem. So one time I met Ehud Olmert when he was the mayor, uh, but that was uh, I was a, in a crowd of people at, a, at an Israel parade. I shook his hand. The other time was when Polyansky was the mayor. Remember who the Polyansky? This was in 2007 or eight, give or take. He was a, a, a Gera Chassid who was able to sort of manipulate the electorate and, and win uh, his term. He, correct, yes. So he was uh, in New York at Parkey Synagogue when I was there. And uh, Rabbi Schneier had a, had a breakfast for him in the, uh, in the social hall. And he invited Henry Kissinger. Henry has his 100th birthday right around now, Rev. Henry. Yeah, yeah, sure. So Henry was there and a few other dignitaries. And the mayor of Jerusalem, Lepoliansky, was there. But Lepoliansky, unlike uh, his predecessors, notably Eir Olmert, Teddy Kalik, Gershon Agron, who all spoke a fluent English, Lepoliansky spoke no English. So the crowd was a very secular crowd mostly Jewish, but not entirely. And the rabbi asked me, can you translate the mayor's words for the audience? Like, okay, fine, I'll translate for the audience. And Lepoliansky's going on and on. And he really is trying to raise money for his hospital in Ashdod. There's a Gera hospital that they built in Ashdod in the last 15 years. So it was really a, a fundraising effort, but it was, it, was, it was not an open fundraiser. It was sort of a below the radar. He was trying to raise money. In any event, He's going on about how Jerusalem is an ear ashira, a wealthy city. So I translated, and he said, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And I translated, Jerusalem is one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And all the crowd starts booing me. Like, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't understand Hebrew, that I made a mistake. He said, no, it's a poor city, poor people. We give charity to Jerusalem. You know, what, what was going on here? I'm thinking to myself, Lepoliansky means one of two things. Either he means culturally it's a rich city, not in any uh, fiscal sense, but in the spiritual and cultural sense, it's a rich city. But I don't think he meant that either. What he really meant was there are some rich people who live there. There are a lot of wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people who have a place in Jerusalem. And it was around that time that there was a massive increase in construction of luxury apartments and condos in Jerusalem for diaspora Jews who had absolutely no intention whatsoever of living in Israel, but who wanted to own a property to go for Pesach and Sukkot. Okay, I'm sure there are plenty of people in this neighborhood who fall into that category. Well, uh, so the, the, the audience didn't understand what the guy meant, and I'm getting heckled. No, it's a poor city. 
but I bring this story up to explain to you that Jerusalem has changed a lot over the past, say, three decades. <clears throat> it's not the same city that you probably first encountered in the 1960s or 70s or even 80s. It, it's not the same city I first encountered 20 years ago. There's been a tremendous increase in, in uh, construction, residential construction, some of which is, of course, necessary to accommodate an exploding population. Remember, Jerusalem is the largest city in Israel by a lot. I mean, Tel Aviv is a distant second. Now, Tel Aviv, granted, it's a metro area, but if you combine Ramat Gan and, 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 and Bat Yam and Hulon and time, it's all a lot of people, but still, Tel Aviv proper is not that large of a city. Jerusalem is tremendously sized, both ge geographically and in terms of density of population, because you have you know, pretty low-rise low buildings so they're all crammed together. Now they're building taller buildings. In any event, this construction was probably not for the, for the betterment of the city. It was for the betterment of certain people's wallets who made a lot of money off of it and to the advantage of diaspora Jews who wanted their, their pita terre uh, in, uh, in Israel. But <laughs> yes, there are plenty of other people who, who bought property and yet who, who don't actually live there. So this exacerbated the, the difficulty in finding uh, affordable housing for the, the native Yerushalmim who have no choice but to do what? Leave, you know, move away to other parts of the country where, where housing is much cheaper. Okay, <clears throat> another, another point I wanted to raise was the issue of the municipal borders of Jerusalem. I, I didn't spend a whole session on it this season Although I might have in years past, I'm not sure. I, I definitely spoke about it in the Rochelle, uh, and I wrote an article about it. But uh, the municipal borders of Jerusalem used to be very small. In the Ottoman period, they encompassed not much more beyond the old city. And then in the British period, it included some neighborhoods to the west and south, Arabic neighborhoods, and some neighborhoods in uh, the West and South that were Jewish and a little bit in the North, but much of what we call Yerushalayim today was not Yerushalayim in the British period. There were neighborhoods, but they were beyond municipal borders. In, 1967, in 1948 to 67, the borders were still pretty small. In 1967, after the war, the state of Israel unilaterally, and much to the chagrin of the United States and other international actors, expanded the Jerusalem municipality to include a wide swath of territory to the north, all the way to almost to Ramallah. Okay, there's a, a piece that sticks out by the Atarot Airport, all the way almost to the, to the gates of Ramallah, to the east, to encompass much of the Arabic neighborhoods that were beyond the old borders, and to the south, to include areas well south of, of, of uh, Ramat Rachel, beyond Gilo, almost all the way to Beit Lechem, to Kevin Rachel. So you have a, a very big municipal Jerusalem. The goal of that was what? What was the political theory behind it? Okay, good. The, the, the political theory behind it was we can't annex the West Bank, but we can annex Jerusalem. And we can define what is Jerusalem and we'll do it to our advantage. So a big municipal Jerusalem means areas that you want to grab, but couldn't figure out a way to do so as part of the West Bank, you can do it when it's so-called East Jerusalem. All right. Well, that facilitated the growth of Jewish neighborhoods 
well beyond the original periphery of the city. In the, in the 2000s, there was a, um, a plan that Netanyahu was in favor of to expand municipal Jerusalem even further, to go as far as Maladumim and Efrat. But there was major pushback. Why was there major pushback? Because the, the, the uh, jurisdictions that were set to be included, the theory was they would gain by having a say in, in Jerusalem government. However, the downside is they'd lose their own government that they, that they have right now that may be more to their liking. The other downside is from the, from the standpoint of the Jerusalem residents, the core of the city, their political power on the city council was going to be watered down by the influx of additional residents. So everybody had a pro and a con. The real downside was the political fraud internationally, because it would seem like a total land grab that areas which had not been previously annexed, but were just area C in the West Bank, now all of a sudden they're in municipal Jerusalem, which Israel claims to have sovereignty over. So because this was a political football, it was dangerous, uh, I thought it was a bad idea, it never came to pass. But it is consistent with what? With a midrash. There's a midrash, everything goes back to the midrash. There's a midrash that says that in Messianic times, Yerushalayim will expand as far as Syria, you know, Syria, uh, or the, the, the Davidic Syria, which he conquered in, in biblical times. So the, the Midrash is onto something that Jerusalem begins as a small core, less than a kilometer in the old city, to something much larger than that today, and maybe even one day even bigger than that. So we, you know, the, the sages of, of, of yesteryear, they, they could predict things uh, about the future. <coughs> you said they considered a frat. This is their frat considered occupied territory? Yes. So that would be really tough stuff. It, it would be a, 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 a very significant political move that would likely engender a lot of ill will all around, even from Israel's allies. Okay, so the last point I want to make for, for this season is about uh, Jeru Jerusalem as a Jewish city versus a city for all of humanity. In, in 1996, I remember I was in high school at the time, it was Jerusalem 3000. Remember Jerusalem 3000? They made a big deal about it. 3000 years from the Davidic conquest of Jerusalem which was uh, claimed to be in the year 1004 uh, BCE. So 1004 plus 1996 equals 3000. It was a rough estimate, you know, rough estimate. Who's to say it was exactly that year? And every shul I remember in America, I would imagine this shul also had one of those billboards. It was a long uh, uh, vertical column. It's on the top said Yerushalayim 3000. And it had a timeline of the history of Jerusalem century by century by century down to modern times. And the vast bulk of the stuff on that list was Jewish content, but there was also other content. Mamluk, uh, uh, Abbasid, Umayyad, Ottoman, Crusader. You know, there were these words that kids who went to shul, who went to yeshiva, they said, what, what does that word mean? I don't know what that is. It's not Hebrew. What language is that? What is this? It's not Jewish. It's Goyish. So I remember my friends not understanding that Jerusalem has a long history that isn't an exclusively Jewish history. I'd like to think that over the last uh, eight, nine months we've been learning, I've gotten that message across. And Montefiore's book, for those who have read it, uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore, his history of Jerusalem, gives the, the impression that this is a city in which people lived, real people, real conquerors, real defeated and victor, and a lot of them, are, and most of them are not Jewish. So there's a Jewish presence, 
but the fate of the city lies in the hands of others more often than not. It's not until, not now, I'm saying it. it's, it's not until the 19th century that a majority Jewish, uh, a majority Jewish demographic reemerges in the city. But for 1800 years, that wasn't the case. And a lot of what we still see today in terms of historical sites, holy places of various faiths, are a product of all those centuries in which what? The Jews were not in control. So, you know, you go to Ir David, you'll see a lot of Jewish. There's a political agenda there. Ir David is very Jewish. You go to the Rova Yudi, Jewish. You go to the Kotel, Jewish. You go to Mount Zion, a little bit Jewish. You go anywhere else, what? Not Jewish, okay? Armenian, Christian, Muslim, okay? Mount of Olives at the bottom. Uh, much of what we see... Yeah. <coughs> so the Palestinians, they could, they could jump in a lake. But, but the point is, I'm trying to make is, we, we should appreciate all that there is to see in the city and recognize the challenges faced by Jews in recovering the city. And when I say recovering the city, I don't mean the IDF on June 7, 1967. That's a battle, a military battle, one day in time. I mean the broad sweep from the 1840s until today is a long, almost 200 years now period of an attempt to reinvigorate Jewish life and a Jewish presence and to transform places that had meaning for others back into places that have meaning historical and contemporary for us, for us. So it's a lot more, a lot more rapid today than it was before. But there's, when I go to Jerusalem, I like to see what happened from the days of the Yishuv Hayashan to today. How did things evolve? And you can see it if you're only you're looking. That's true. All right, folks. With that, we'll conclude, and I will see you again next time. Remains to be seen, but uh, everybody have a good summer. Have a good summer.